Well, speaking as someone who has spent more time in the last decade watching sports than watching his own children, probably, I can speak with some confidence that the greatest sports network in Canada is TSN. Sportsnet has more quantity of coverage. They cover more things, including all of the NHL. But TSN always has more quality. And so, while Angie's default channel is channel 603, the Food Network, mine, <laughs> mine is definitely 1400 TSN. One of the things that sets TSN apart from its rivals are its uh, well-known in-show features, the top tens, the highlights of the night, and one that's seldom used but awesome every time. Dale or Yella, you want to guess what I'm thinking of here? Shane? Give me your hand. I am blanking. The TSN turning point. Oh. I love the TSN turning point. They don't use it very often. But whenever the TSN turning point makes an appearance, it means that something in the highlight package is going to occur that will alter the course of the game completely. So it might be uh, a timely goal, an unfortunate injury, a bad call by a ref, a big hit that rallies a team. It could be a fan interaction, it could be a huge save. Anything in which the momentum of the game pivots in favor of the other team um, and galvanizes that team onwards towards victory. That's the TSN turning point. TSN turning points indicate an enormous event with game-changing consequences. It means an underdog will be united in a passionate surge towards success. It transforms inevitable defeat into sweet, sweet victory. The TSN turning point is a moment that changes everything. And ladies and gentlemen, if the book of Acts were narrated by a TSN talking head, then today's passage would be prefaced by those three tantalizing words. The martyrdom of Stephen is a big old TSN turning point. Not just for the book of Acts, but for the church of Jesus Christ as a whole, of which we are descendants. The action is getting increasingly intense in the book of Acts. The apostles have been repeatedly uh, thrown in the penalty box. Prison. Sorry if I'm stretching this metaphor too far. Uh, false disciples are being given game misconducts. They're, they're dead. <laughs> Ananias is fire. And when disunity in the church appears, when the team seems to be falling apart, the captains ensure that all team members, notably the Greek-speaking widows, are properly cared for. Yet in all this action, no member of the church has yet died because of their faith. Sure, the believers have been persecuted because of their faith, and then celebrated for being counted as worthy to endure shame for the name of Jesus. So they've endured imprisonment uh, because of their faith. And sure, Ananias and Sapphira have died, but not because of their faith. In fact, they died because of their faithlessness. And so in all of this, no one has truly endured the same unjust fate as their Savior, Jesus. Beginning today, however, and covering the next few weeks, we will examine how the execution of Stephen who is the first Christian martyr, represents an enormous TSN turning point in the focus of Acts, the belief system of the church, and our own definition of heroism. It's a moment that changes everything. The consequences are still being felt in the church today. So let's begin um, the story of Stephen by finishing off chapter 6 and reading verses 8 to 15. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. 
They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, We heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This roused the people, the elders, and the teachers of religious law. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council, the Sanhedrin. The lying witnesses said, This man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. We'll pause there. Stephen must have been a great man of great reputation and great renown because Luke speaks more glowingly of him than he does of some other dudes you may have heard of by the names of Peter or James or John or even Paul. Nobody is, is given this waterfall of praise as much as Stephen. We first met Stephen during the last sermon in Acts, that was two weeks ago, as the church and the apostles sought to solve the issue of the Greek-speaking widows not having their needs met during the distribution of food. And so to solve that problem, seven leaders were chosen to head up this valuable ministry that brought food to the neglected and unity to the fellowship. Of these seven leaders, two names stand out above the rest, Philip, who we'll meet again soon, and Stephen, the same man we learn about uh, here and throughout chapter 7. Luke wastes no time gushing over Stephen uh, when he is first introduced back in verse 8. He is the first name mentioned among the seven, giving him a degree of special honor. He's the head of the seven, in other words. And although it's mentioned that all the candidates must be men who are well-respected, wise, and full of the Holy Spirit, that's, that was the qualifications required for any of these seven men. So all of them met those qualifications. But Luke redundantly highlights the fact that Stephen was indeed a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. That's what it says in verse 8 here. Stephen, uh, uh, sorry, back in verse 5. They chose the following. Stephen a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and then the rest. Well, duh, of course he is a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. That's how he got the job in the first place. Those were the qualifications for the job. It'd be like if Luke said, they were to choose seven tall, red-headed men, and one of the men they chose was named Stephen, who was very tall and had red hair. So, of course he does. That's what you said they needed to be. Luke repeats the crucial conditions for candidacy for Stephen, but not for Philip or Timon or Nicanor or any of the other members of the seven leaders. Why? Why is Stephen specifically highlighted? Well, because apparently, even among this council of extremely well-regarded and excellent men, Stephen's character and conviction and wisdom elevated him above the others. So of all this, the church, of which there are now thousands of people, they were to choose seven well-respected men filled with wisdom in the Holy Spirit. And of those seven, here's this guy, Stephen, who is even elevated above those seven. He served with distinction. He was a model disciple. He was a hero. Even amongst a small company of heroes, he stood out. He must have been a very great man. And Luke continues to portray him in heroic terms in our passage that we read today. Luke kicks off this crucial turning point in the book of Acts by again highlighting Stephen's exceptional character. We're told up front that Stephen was 
a man full of grace and power, in verse 8, and that he, like Peter, who was the leader of the twelve, Stephen the leader of the seven, like Peter, Stephen was able to perform great wonders and signs among the people. Finally, we learn that when debating others, none could stand against the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. These are some pretty high praise. Like, if, if, that, if any one of those things is your defining characteristic, you are a hero, right? Stephen, look at that list. Truly an impressive man. Now, none of what Luke says about Stephen should be surprising to us in the sense that we should consider how Luke emphasizes Stephen's spirit-filled nature. He is filled with the spirit. And these are all characteristics of the spirit, so it should be no surprise to us that they come out in the person of Stephen. It's not Stephen doing these great things. It's not Stephen with this great character, other than Stephen is being submissive to the triumphant power of the Almighty living within him. He is in tune with the Holy Spirit. He is allowing the Holy Spirit. He is faithful to the Holy Spirit, which allows him to be all these things. Again, there's nothing special necessarily about Stephen other than his faith and his willingness to allow the Holy Spirit to transform him. So it's not surprising that if he's that filled with the Holy Spirit, he can do all these things, and he is all these things, right? That's not necessarily surprising. What is surprising, however, is that a man of such power and such reputation and renown had been chosen for the seemingly insignificant task of dishing out food to the lowliest people in the kingdom. <coughs> Doesn't that seem like small potatoes to a man of Stephen's gifts and reputation? No. No, that was the whole sermon two weeks ago. That is not small potato stuff. That is big picture, crucially important stuff. There's no such thing as a small act of service in the kingdom. There isn't. Faithfulness in the small things, like humbly distributing bread to widows, means you can be trusted in big things, like boldly laying down your life for the furtherment of the gospel. To serve the poor and to work to unify the church, those are not small things. Those are enormous things. Those are the essential acts of any believer. Those are the things that separate us from the world. It's exactly this sort of man, full of grace and power, that would be called to a responsibility like caring for the widows and unifying the church. It's exactly the role he's fit for. And besides, being in charge of a small food program apparently doesn't exclude Stephen from participating in apostolic activity, the big, the big glory-bringing activities, things like healings and miracles and powerful charisma speeching, speeching, preaching. Uh, just because he was in charge of something seemingly in the background, something administrative, something he would do behind a desk, just because he was part of the seven who had that role, doesn't mean that he can't also do these upfront powerful acts of the Spirit. He can do both, because they're all powerful acts of the Spirit. To show kindness to someone, to show compassion, is just as powerful as healing someone or preaching in front of your enemies. They're all great acts. It's humans who limit these acts of service and administrative duties, like caring for widows, to the file of lesser work. I don't know why. I don't know why we see the person who cleans the church, as any less than the person who preaches on Sunday. They're all essential roles in the kingdom. There is no lesser work 
in the kingdom, just as there are no lesser people. Small things, as we saw in communion time, have enormous magnified importance in the kingdom of God. All acts can be service, all words can be praise, and all of life can become worship. There is nothing small in the kingdom. Part of what makes Stephen so heroic is the fact that he was faithful and strong in all of these things, in all these small things that are actually big things. He was faithful and strong among the hungry outcasts of society. He was faithful and strong among his spirit-filled brothers and sisters. He was faithful and strong among the worldly power of the enemies of Jesus' name, as we'll see next week, the next couple of weeks. Wherever he was, he was the same faithful, strong man. He was faithful and strong as he gave life to others, like you think of the widows or of those he healed or did powerful signs amongst. He was faithful and strong when he gave life to others, and he was faithful and strong up to the moment where his own life was crushed out of him. In all things, he was faithful and strong. Moreover, Stephen was filled with the grace of his master, Jesus. It's that grace that called him to show compassion to the widows. It's that grace that manifested itself in powerful signs and wonders. It's that grace that allowed him to fearlessly lay down his life as his Savior had called him to. Those are acts of grace. But don't confuse grace with timidity. I think lots of times we, we see grace as a soft word. That if you are a gracious person, then you just let people walk all over you. Do you know how much strength it takes to let people walk all over you in love? To turn the other cheek? To go the extra mile? Do you know how much strength that, and power that requires? It's not a soft word. It's not... Saying that Stephen was gracious, as Luke does, shouldn't conjure up images of a sheepish or spineless pushover. Grace is power in the kingdom. Just as defeat in this world leads to victory in the next. Just as being a servant to the king of creation is the most freeing experience humans can know. You're never more free than when you're a slave to Jesus Christ. Grace is power. It's not weakness. It's strength. And it's because of grace and faithful obedience that Stephen speaks so powerfully and with such deep conviction in the presence of those who will execute him. Just like Jesus did. Just like Jesus did. A lot of what happens to Stephen is very reflective of what happened to Jesus. Is very similar. It begins with both, the stories of both begin with these spirit-filled men, Stephen and Jesus, debating and speaking in a Jewish place of worship. We, it was like two months that I spent on Luke 20 and 21, where Jesus is in the temple debating with the temple leaders. We were there for a long time because there was lots to talk about. It was a very full portion of Luke. And it happens in those, I mean, all important discussions in those days and age happen in the synagogues and in the temple. That's, it's just where people would gather to have these important conversations. So, I mean, it's, it should be shocking that it happens here in the synagogue and, and there for Jesus in the temple. But there's definitely a similarity. Stephen is um, debating in the synagogue for freed slaves, which sounds like a really awesome place to worship. It makes sense that this is the location that Stephen chose for his debates. In fact, this may have been the very synagogue that he had once belonged to. It may be his home church, so to speak. 
We know that Stephen was a Greek-speaking believer, and this particular synagogue was designed for Jewish believers who were not Hebrew speakers, believers who had been freed slaves around the Roman Empire, um, perhaps going all the way back to the exile in Babylon. This synagogue was designed for people who were not Hebrew speakers to come and be Jewish. There were Jews there from throughout the Roman territories. Cyrene and Alexandria are both in northern Africa, whereas Cilicia and Asia Minor are in modern-day Turkey. Very different geographical locations in the Roman Empire. And by the way, you want to know what the most important town in Cilicia was? Tarsus, Saul's hometown. And we know by the end of chapter 7 that Saul is there witnessing all of this. So this may also have been Saul's home church when he's in and around Jerusalem. The irony, however, in all of this, in the name of the synagogue, the synagogue of the freedmen, the irony was that the name of the synagogue was not truly indicative of those who worshipped in it. Freedmen. Stephen proclaims an offer of freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom to approach their God, freedom from the suffocating regulations of the law. He, the gospel message, the charisma message is one of freedom. And Stephen brings this message of freedom to the synagogue of the freed slaves. And instead of accepting this freedom, these men in the synagogue of freed men reject the offer of freedom. And they instead imprison and execute the one who offers them their freedom. It's a cruel irony. But it's not just the location of the debating that mirrors Jesus. It's also the result. Verse 10 says, None of his accusers could stand against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Sounds a lot like Jesus in the temple in chapter 20 of Luke, doesn't it? Every time Jesus had an argument, either his enemies skulked away sad and pouty, or were just utterly annihilated by the argument and had nothing left to say. Everything, Jesus always had the perfect response to everything. And that sounds a lot like Stephen here. And it's interesting, the word wisdom, which is in Greek, Sophia, the word wisdom is only used four times in all of Acts. Twice in chapter 6, referring to Stephen, and twice in chapter 7, spoken by Stephen. It's the only time wisdom, which is like this huge, important character trait of, of people of God, it's only spoken about Stephen or by Stephen. I think that means that Luke sees him as a man who is uniquely wise, who has a special spirit-filled wisdom surrounding him, like a light radiating out of him. Of course, wisdom is more than just intelligence. Stephen isn't just wise because he's good at debating his enemies. No, wisdom is an approach to life. Wisdom is about the ability to seek God in all aspects of life. So I'm going to take an aside, step aside from how Stephen is similar to Jesus to, to speak about wisdom real quick, as we see it in, in Stephen. Wisdom is the ability to seek God in all things. We've already examined how Stephen was gracious and powerful and faithful in all things. Well, grace, graciousness and, and powerfulness and, and faithfulness, those are all characteristics of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Those are characteristics of the Spirit. So if you're filled with the Spirit, which is wisdom, you will be filled with these things. They're, they're offshoots of wisdom. Those who are wise make the right choices in speech and in action and in belief. As we will see in his powerful speech in chapter 7, Stephen is deeply rooted in Scripture, which is the source of all wisdom. The root cause, or the root source of wisdom, along with the Spirit. 
That's where wisdom comes from. And wisdom, the fruits of wisdom, are visible to all. Wisdom has a fragrance, an attractive fragrance to it. Even those who are losing the debate can see the wisdom of Stephen. And it frustrates them. And it leads them to execute him. And so, since they can't defeat Stephen in wisdom or in spirit, they do to Stephen as they had done to Jesus when they couldn't match wits with Jesus. They seek to eliminate him. They get rid of him. If they can't beat him with their words, then they will literally, physically beat him with stones until he is dead. To do so, they needed to go through the legal system. Of course, they casually breeze through the Ninth Commandment in doing so, as both Jesus and Stephen had false witnesses bear false testimony about them. But hey, these upstanding Jewish leaders can't be expected to follow all the commandments all the time, can they? And so they break the law in having Stephen uh, dealt with. The Jews weren't allowed to carry out capital punishment. Since 6 AD, only Romans could do that. But there's a loophole. The Sanhedrin, or Jewish High Council, was allowed to pronounce and execute the death sentence in any matter where the sanctity of the temple was threatened in word or deed. If the temple was threatened or blasphemed against, the Sanhedrin didn't need to go to the Romans. They could just execute judgment themselves. So if someone spoke ill of the temple or behaved in a way that was blasphemous against it, the Sanhedrin had every right to kill them. That's why Jesus' attackers flaunted his teaching about destroying the temple. Although Jesus was talking about his body as the temple, they heard an attack against the holy sanctuary. And that's the same tactic that Stephen's enemies bring up against him in verses 11 to 14. He spoke bad about Moses. He said Jesus would destroy this temple. He said his rabbi would rewrite the law. That's why that's the attack against Stephen, is because if those things are true, then the Sanhedrin can do something about it. They can get rid of this problem. Now, my translation about lying is probably not a good translation, because Stephen probably did proclaim these things. He probably did say that Jesus was overthrowing the temple system, because he was. That's a, a key and crucial part of what Jesus taught. And in fact, when we look at what Stephen proclaims for the Sanhedrin, that's a big element of it, is that the temple system is done away with. So it's not that Stephen ever said those things. That's, not what, that's why the debates were so intense. It's because he was saying these things. But what makes these accusers false witnesses isn't that they're lying about the accusations. They're false witnesses because they're speaking contrary to God's truth. Certainly they are taking things out of context and are presenting trumped-up charges, but the real issue is the synagogue leaders and the Sanhedrin's inability to see truth when it's right in front of their eyes. They should know better. They should be able to read the signs. And in fact, there's a huge sign right at the end of this passage in verse 15. Even when Stephen's face lights up, that should have been strong evidence that he was speaking for and by God. His face isn't lit up like two sappy lovebirds sighing at each other, like in 2003, summer 2003, when Angie and I were serving together. We'd be playing games with the kids and look across at her and her face would light up with with joy. <laughs> Love. It's not like that. What did you do for her? I married her. That's what I did. It's not like that. It's no Hallmark greeting card picture of a chubby little baby cherub with his face all aglow. 
It's actually an image of terror, of, of power, similar to Jesus at the Transfiguration. Remember that story? The disciples, they couldn't, they couldn't look at him for a time. And guess whose face was famously lit up when he was in God's presence on Mount Sinai? Moses. So much so that the people couldn't look at him or go near him because his face was so blindingly bright and they were scared of him. They didn't want him anywhere near. Moses had to walk around with a veil over his face because he had been in the presence of God. He was blinding and terrifying to behold and that's what's happening to Stephen. He is so wrapped up in the presence of the Almighty that he's like Moses receiving the law at Sinai or like Jesus being transfigured on the mountain. The same Moses that he's being accused of supplanting and casting aside, Stephen is actually becoming like Moses. The fact that all eyes are captivated by the angel-like brightness of his faith, face is itself a spirit-filled sign of power. He is aglow like Moses, like Jesus. Whereas Jesus was silent before his accusers like a sheep before the shearers, Stephen makes the most of his opportunity and he speaks. And boy, does he ever speak. He goes full kerygma on the Sanhedrin. Remember what Jesus had promised about the Spirit giving you the words you need when called in to defend your faith? Luke doesn't need to say that about Stephen. He is so filled with the Spirit that that's just understood. He doesn't need a special portion of the Spirit to help him defend his faith. He just always exists in that state, which is amazing. Stephen's got the maximum dose of the Spirit already. He's spirited to the max, and his powerful speech makes that clear. That's what makes Stephen such a hero. Despite the ignorance that he faces, despite the injustice, despite the threat of violence, despite all of this, Stephen is clear-minded and focused on his mission. He's focused on his Savior. And because of his fierce faithfulness, his airtight wisdom, and his spirit-filled power, Stephen becomes a TSN turning point in the life of the church. He is called up to the plate of martyrdom, and he faces it fearlessly, like a hero, and like Jesus. There's strength there. There's grace. There's power. There's faithfulness. And so he's a hero. Stephen is very much a hero. But the question remains, what, if anything, does this mean for you and I? I have no field trips planned for us to go start debates in the synagogues of the freed men. None of us will be hauled into the remand center in Edmonton for claiming that Jesus supersedes the temple system. None of us will battle antagonists from Northern Africa and Asia Minor. So what does Luke's portrayal of Stephen as a hero mean for us? Well, I think answering that question begins with the TSN turning point of our own. We need to recognize what true heroics look like, what a true hero is. As a kid, I had no TSN. I, so I had to go outside and actually play the sports I loved instead of sit on the couch in a haze of lazy frustration and potato chip crumbs. I didn't just watch sports, I went out and played the sports. And whenever I played after dark on my driveway with two buckets as goalposts and my cat Smokey as the goalie, because <laughs> my brothers would never play with me, I was always scoring some overtime goal as Steve Eiserman or Pavel Burry or Gretzky or Lemieux. And to me, you know, growing up, that's what a hero was. The one who secures the victory, the one who reigns supreme, the one who crushes the enemy and immediately receives honor and fame. That's a hero, right? Well, that's not exactly what biblical heroics look like. Not exactly. 
And Stephen is a prime example of that. Stephen isn't a hero because he conquered. In fact, Stephen was crushed. His victory over his enemies in the debate just led to him dying. His victory led to his defeat. Stephen didn't immediately receive honor and fame because of some instant act of success. He, didn't. he did rise to the moment. But what gave him that status of honor is that he earned his respect and his honor through countless acts of selflessness and graciousness and faithful obedience, even to death. He became less, and that's what made him worthy to become more. Sure, he performed mighty miracles and was given earthly honor and spoke with authority, all these great things that are very heroic in and of themselves, but those anyone can do those things. There are pagans who speak powerfully. There are doctors who do tremendous things. You don't need to be filled with the Spirit to do those heroic-type things, necessarily. I mean, miracles are its own thing. But that's not what made Stephen a hero, I don't think. I think what makes Stephen a hero to me is his willingness to do these things even if the only audience was his Lord and Savior. Even if they got him nowhere, he would still be faithful. Even if they got him stoned to death. He's a hero because he gave all that he had to Jesus, as any true disciple should, even his very life. It, it's a truly absurd kingdom that we live in, where servants are leaders, where grace breeds power, and where death is a reward for faithful service. It's all backwards because of a TSN turning point. Well, we choose to turn to the kingdom and be a hero as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the life of Stephen. Thank you for his grace and his power, for his faithful obedience. Thank you for how he combats evil by being filled with your spirit. I pray that we would be heroes as well, that we would find you and speak you and live you with wisdom and with power. Father, um, I pray that in all the little things we do, we would do for you, whether people are watching them or not. I pray that we would be heroes because we commit fully to you, that we love you with our whole heart, that we are filled with your life and with your grace and with your wisdom, as Stephen was. Holy Spirit, you have the power to make us into heroes, and I pray that we would be susceptible, that we would be receiving of that power. I pray these things in your name. Amen. I know it's kind of anticlimactic. To, to preach about Stephen when we all know what's going to happen to him, but I think knowing what happens to him makes his heroics all the more. He was great for the things he did in life, and he was great in, in the way he approached his death. He's, he's truly a hero. All right, have a good, uh, have a good week, everyone.